This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, Time for Poetry. In this case, an installment of the Lyric World series, featuring the celebrated poet Arthur Z. His collection, The Glass Constellation, New and Collected Poems, is being published this month. The Poetry Foundation notes that Z is known for his difficult, meticulous poems. His work was described as the intersection of Taoist contemplation, Zen rock gardens, and postmodern experimentation by the critic John Tritica. Curated by Seattle-based poet Shinyi Pai, Lyric World, Conversations with Contemporary Poets, is a rich exploration of the themes of modern poetry and a kind of meditation. It takes us into how poems come to be, how they find, inspire, and inform us, and how they provoke deeper conversations about the human experience. Town Hall Seattle presented this event on December 7th, 2020. Music for the program was provided by the composer Gao Ping. Here, Shinyi Pai introduces the program. Arthur Z. has published 10 books of poetry, including Sightlines, which won the National Book Award. His new and collected poems, The Glass Constellation, will be published by Copper Canyon Press in April 2021. Z. has also published one book of Chinese poetry translations, The Silk Dragon. He is the recipient of many honors, including a Guggenheim Fellowship and two National Endowment for the Arts Fellowships. Z. is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a professor emeritus at the Institute of American Indian Arts, and was the first poet laureate of Santa Fe, New Mexico. I first met Arthur in 1997 when I was a wide-eyed graduate student at the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics at Naropa University. Arthur was on the cusp of publishing The Red Shifting Web, a collection of poems that gathered together 18 years of his work and reflected his deep engagement to poetic craft. More than two decades later, I'm excited to chat with him about his forthcoming collection and the themes that have pervaded his work throughout a long and celebrated career. I'm going to read a selection of poems from my new and collected poems, The Glass Constellation, which Copper Canyon Press will publish next April. Black Center. Green tips of tulips are rising out of the earth. You don't flens a whale or fire at beer cans in an arroyo, but catch the budding tips of pear branches and wonder what it's like to live along a purling edge of spring. Jefferson once tried to assemble a mastodon skeleton on the White House floor, but with pieces missing fail to sequence the bones. When the last speaker of a language dies, a hue vanishes from the spectrum of visible light. Last night, you sped past revolving and flashing red, blue, and white lights along the road, a wildfire in the dark. Though no one you knew was taken in the midnight ambulance, an arrow struck a bullseye and quivered in its shaft. One minute gratitude rises like water from an underground lake. Another dissolution gnaws from a black center. First snow. A rabbit has stopped on the gravel driveway. 
imbibing the silence, you stare at spruce needles. There's no sound of a leaf blower, no sign of a black bear. A few weeks ago, a buck scraped his rack against an aspen trunk. A carpenter scribed a plank along a curved stone wall. You only spot the rabbit's ears and tail. When it moves, you locate it against speckled gravel. But when it stops, it blends in again. The world of being is like this gravel. You think you own a car, a house, this blue zigzag shirt, but you just borrow these things. Yesterday, you constructed an aqueduct of dreams and stood at Gibraltar, but you possess nothing. Snow melts into a pool of clear water, and in this stillness, starlight behind daylight, wherever you gaze. This next poem is called Salt Song, and it's from the point of view of salt speaking to a human being. Salt Song. Zunis make shrines on the way to a lake where I emerge, and Miwoks gather me out of pools along the Pacific. The cheetah thirsts for me. And when you sprinkle me on ribeye, you have no idea how I balance silence with thunder in crystal. You dream of butterfly hunting in Madagascar, spelunking through caves echoing with dripping stalactites. And you don't see how I yearn to shimmer in orange aurora against flame. Look at me in your hand. In Egypt, I scrubbed the bodies of kings and queens. In Pakistan, I zigzag upward through 26 miles of tunnels before drawing my first breath in sunlight. If you heat a kiln to 2,380 degrees and scatter me inside, I vaporize and bond with clay. In this unseen moment, a potter prays because my pattern is out of his hands. And when I touch your lips, you salivate. And when I dissolve on your tongue, your hair rises, ozone unlocks. A single stroke of lightning sizzles to earth. This next poem is called Unpacking a Globe. And there are actually two globes in the poem. There's the uh, model of the earth that I'm picking out of a box. And of course, there's also figuratively the world at large. Unpacking a globe. I gaze at the Pacific and don't expect to ever see the heads on Easter Island. Though I guess at sunlight rippling the yellow grasses sloping to shore. Yesterday, a doe ate grass in the orchard. It lifted its ears and stopped eating when it sensed us watching from a glass hallway. In his sleep, a veteran sweats, diffusing a landmine. On the globe, I mark the battle of the coral sea. No one frets at that now. A poem can never be too dark. I nod, and staring at the Kenai, hear ice breaking up along an inlet. Yesterday, a coyote trotted across my headlights and turned his head but didn't break stride. That's how I want to live on this planet, alive to a rabbit at a glass door and flower where there is no flower. This next poem is called Sightlines, and it's set uh, situated in the Pewaukee Valley, which is a rural community about 20 miles north of Santa Fe. And the speaker is walking in a dry irrigation ditch. Uh, it's during the off season. And to the west, up on one of the mesas, um, 
the speaker can see Los Alamos, the birthplace, of course, of the atom bomb. The poem will move through space and time. Uh, there, it's written in one-line stanzas, so there's silence between the lines to give a reader a sense to register uh, each of the images and phrases. Sight lines. I'm walking in sight of the Rio Nambe. Salt cedar rises through silt in an irrigation ditch. The snowpack in the Sangre de Cristos has already dwindled before spring. At least no fires erupt in the conifers above Los Alamos. The plutonium waste has been hauled to an underground site. A man who built plutonium triggers breeds horses now. No one could anticipate this distance from Monticello. Jefferson despised newspapers, but no one thing takes us out of ourselves. During the Cultural Revolution, a boy saw his mother shot by a firing squad. A woman detonates when a spam text triggers bombs strapped to her body. When I come to an upright circular steel lid, I step out of the ditch. I step out of the ditch, but step deeper into myself. I arrive at a space that no longer needs autumn or spring. I find ginseng where there is no ginseng, my talisman of desire. Though you are visiting Paris, you are here at my fingertips. Though I step back into the ditch, no whitening cloud dispels this world's mystery. The ditch ran before the year of the Louisiana Purchase. I'm walking on silt, glimpsing horses in the field, fielding the shapes of our bodies in white sand. Though parallel lines touch in the infinite, the infinite is here. I'm going to read two new poems that are in the section of new poems in the glass constellation and picking up on the theme of irrigation and water, which is uh, the lifeblood of northern New Mexico. This next poem is written in an um, unusual form. It takes its uh, impulse from Japanese haibun, which is prose and then a haiku, prose and then a haiku. The uh, poem, the context of the poem will explain itself. It's in four parts. Asekia del Llano. One. The word asekia is derived from the Arabic asekia, water conduit, and refers to an irrigation ditch that transports water from a river to farms and fields, as well as the association of members connected to it. Blossoming peach trees to the west, steel buildings glint above the mesa. In Santa Fe, New Mexico, the Acequia del Llano is one and a half miles long and begins at Nichols Reservoir Dam. At the bottom of the dam, an outlet structure and flow meter control water that runs through a four-inch pipe at up to 150 gallons per minute. The water runs along a hillside and eventually drops into the Santa Fe River. Fifteen families and two organizations belong to the Stitch Association, and the Asequia irrigates about 30 acres of gardens and orchards. In the ditch, water flowing, now an eagle feather wind. Two, yarrow, rabbit brush, claret cup cactus, one seed juniper, Douglas fir and scarlet penstemon are some of the plants in this environment. Endangered and threatened species include the southwestern willow flycatcher, the least tern, 
the violet-crowned hummingbird, the American martin, and the white-tailed ptarmigan. Turning my flashlight behind me, I see a large buck three feet away. Each April, all of the members come or hire workers who come to do the annual spring cleaning. This involves walking the length of the ditch, using shovels and clippers to clear branches, silt, and other debris. Twigs, pine needles, plastic bags, cleared today before moonrise. Three, the Ditch Association is organized with the Mayordomo, Ditch Manager, who oversees the distribution of water according to each Parciantes, holder of water rights allotment. The acequia runs at a higher elevation than all of the land held by the Parciantes, so the flow of water is gravity-fed. Crisscrossing the ditch, avoiding choya, I snag my hair on branches. Each year, the irrigation season runs from about April 15th to October 15th. On Thursdays and Sundays at 5.30 a.m., I get up and walk about a quarter of a mile uphill to the ditch and drop a metal gate into it. When the water level rises, water goes through screens, then down two pipes and runs below to irrigate grass, lilacs, trees, and an orchard across the valley. Ten lights glimmer from hillside houses. Four. Orion and other constellations of stars stand out at that hour. As it moves toward summer, the constellations shift. And by July 1st, when I walk uphill, I walk in early daylight. By mid-September, I again go uphill in the dark and listen for coyote and deer in between the pinyons and junipers. One by one, we light candles on leaves, let them go flickering downstream. The Ganges River is 1,569 miles long. The Rio Grande is 1,896 miles long. It periodically dries up, but when it runs its full length, it runs from its headwaters in the mountains of southern Colorado into the Gulf of Mexico. Water from the Santa Fe River runs into the Rio Grande. Water from the Acequia del Llano runs into the Santa Fe River. From a length of 100 paces along the acequia, I draw or allotment of water. Here, I pull a translucent cactus spine out of your hand. And this last poem is called Transpirations. It's the last poem in the book. Leafing branches of a backyard plum Branches of water on a dissolving ice sheet. Chatter of magpies when you approach. Lilacs lean over the road, weighted with purple blossoms. Then the noon sun shimmers the grasses. You ride the surge into summer. Smell of pinyon crackling in the fireplace. Blued notes of a saxophone in the air. Not by sand running through an hourglass, but by our bodies igniting. Passing in the form of vapors from a living body. This world of orange sunlight and wildfire haze. World of iron filings pulled toward magnetic south and north. Pool of quicksilver when you bend to tie your shoes. Standing, you well up with glistening eyes. Have you lived with utmost care? Have you articulated emotions like the edges of leaves? 
adjusting your breath to the seasonal rhythm of grasses, gazing into a lake on a salt flat and drinking in reflection the Milky Way. Thank you. Thank you so much for giving us a preview of this tremendous collection. It was wonderful to hear you read from this new body of work. Um, Thank you. Would love to just um, dive into a conversation with you. Um, so, you know, listening to you reading For Snow, I was really struck by this idea of uh, how you're interacting with the image in, in those poems, um, the idea of what's borrowed and, and what we don't know, uh, what we don't own, rather. Um, I feel almost like, uh, you know, there's a, there is a tendency or way in which poetry can make the image precious or a kind of way in which we may think that we own these images when perhaps we only witness them. And so the, the larger question around this is, I know that you've written about themes of climate change and human impacts on the environment and how we relate to the environment for more than 20 years, um, going back to your earlier collections like Red Shifting Web. How have these concerns and your approach to writing about these particular issues evolved over time? Uh, thanks for this wonderful question. I, I think, um, well, the environment and uh, nature has certainly been important to me from the beginning. And I think my responses early on were maybe more simple. Um, I'm thinking of a poem back in the early 1990s. And um, I guess I want to say long before there was an eco-poetry movement or ecology and poetry movement, I was doing my own thing and um, paying attention to nature, looking at what was going on in the environment, and uh, in some ways just responding to that. So in this early poem, I have um, a list of 30 endangered species. I won't read the whole thing, but it starts off deltoid, spurge, red wolf, ocelot. And it's just a litany, and the idea or the hope is it appears like a complete surprise to a reader because it's the third section in this larger poem, and there's no explanation. So a reader hears the sound, you see the images, and you just see one after the other after the other. But hopefully by the 30th naming, um, a reader gets a sense of, well, what's going on? What's the thread? And there's this idea that these are all species about to vanish off the face of the earth. So I see that as a fairly early or middle kind of response where I am really just sort of zooming in on that. And I think uh, more recently, I'm seeing the environment and climate change and those issues as much more as part of a complex web. So in the first poem that I read, Black Center, there's uh, a statement about when the last speaker of a language dies, a hue vanishes from the spectrum of visible light. And that just came to me as I was writing, but I was reflecting on this awareness that not just things in nature, but you know, every, I think, six or seven minutes, a human language is vanishing off the face of the earth. And rather than like list a set of names, which would have been the same, you know, that I did 25, 30 years ago, it seemed more interesting to me to think about that in a larger context. And somehow, I don't know how it happened. It's just one of those mysteries. The image of like white light is having all of the languages of the world. And then as each language disappears, there's a kind of diminishment. To me, that's a much more interesting, complex, poetic way of responding to climate change and the sort of human web and the web of nature. They're intermeshed in ways we can't always see or anticipate. Well, yes, hearing you talk about um, the, that litany of endangered species, I feel like likewise in this poem, there was a collection where there was like a, an index of various Native American tribes and, and a similar approach. And um, Another question I wanted to ask you was, you know, as part of thinking about climate change, it's really impossible to not talk about climate justice and the environmental impacts on marginalized peoples. Um, for decades, you taught Native American students at the Institute of American Indian Arts. In what ways might those experiences have informed your perspective towards the land and our stewardship of place? Um. Just as a preface, let me say I taught at the Institute of American Indian Arts for 22 years 
from 1984 to 2006. And I worked with students probably from over 200 tribes across the United States. So it wasn't just like Native Americans from the Southwest. Many people think of the Institute as just the Southwest, and it's really national. Um, they, they, the students influenced me in many ways. And I think in terms of the lands, uh, to respond specifically to your question, I, I want to, um, I find myself hesitating because I want to avoid an easy response, which would be to say, oh, well, Native Americans reverence the land. And that, of course, becomes in danger of being a cliche that that's, you know, a stereotype. And, um, you know, the students I worked with at the Institute had, frankly, very difficult, challenging life experiences. I mean, that was one of the things that made their poetry extraordinary. But uh, I say that because when they um, did uh, certain things to reverence the land, I think for me, there was a sense of, well, this isn't some cliche or just speaking out of the mouth. It was, a, there was a great sense of fragility there's a great sense that this respect for the land had to be earned and not just earned, but had to be maintained and that this was a continual kind of struggle. And that impressed me and that sense of renewal and responsibility and care. I'd love to turn back to um, thinking about the way in which you engage with uh, environment uh, and nature in your work. Um, your poems really bring the eye of a keen naturalist uh, with a deep interest in ecology. And I know that you grew up in New York and also lived in urban environments like the San Francisco Bay Area, Bay Area for much of your earlier life. I'd love to hear about how you developed this sense of attention to the world. I think, again, it's something that one earns that you uh, work with, but there's an initial spark or interest. Um, I was born in New York City. I lived in Queens, Fresh Meadows, when I was very young, and then a kind of suburban environment, Garden City. And there wasn't a lot of nature around. There were like trees and lawns. But, you know, I've always had a love of nature. And I remember being a kid, going around the neighborhood, collecting leaves, being fascinated by them, and just the variety. And I think my parents thought I was maybe a little crazy or whatever, but I remember having like this huge box full of all these kinds of leaves and I even dipped them. I did some research and I found you could preserve the leaves by dipping them in liquid paraffin. So I got these blocks of wax and I melted them on the stove and I dipped them and laid them out. And I remember my parents being kind of like astonished, but I was just really excited and looking at nature and that was the nature that was available, you know? So um, and I say that as a preface to, you know, I've lived in New Mexico 40, gee, 48 years. And um, I say it as a preface to my mushroom hunting, which is something I do every summer here in the mountains of New Mexico. So that early interest in nature was there, but I think it's really flourished uh, living in this uh, environment in northern New Mexico, where there really is a lot more access to nature and living in nature is so much a part of our daily life. Well, yeah, so to talk more about New Mexico, um, you know, your poems speak to this deep relationship with the Asequia in Santa Fe, and you've also looked at places like Los Alamos in your writing. Um, what are some of the ways in which uh, living within the landscape of New Mexico has impacted your sensibilities towards the environment? Uh, thank you. I, I've lived in New Mexico, as I said, 48 years, and it's had an enormous impact on my work. Um, it's a cliche to say, oh, well, it's the light in the landscape. And I would say it's so much more. Uh, for 18 years, I lived in Hakona, this uh, agricultural valley about 20 miles north of Santa Fe, where sight lines is set. And um, I just want to say as preface, um, I'm a science dropout. I started writing poetry at MIT. My father wanted me to be a chemical engineer, but I have the science training and background. And living in northern New Mexico, um, I would go up to Los Alamos out of curiosity, and I met a number of scientists and physicists who worked there. And um, so that sense of, you know, the history of the atom bomb of um, the Manhattan Project, the first atom bomb was exploded in New Mexico at Trinity site in White Sands. All of these are factors uh, and influences and forces in my poetry. So uh, I say this because someone else might 
you know, live in the rural valley north of Santa Fe and just look at the landscape. But for me to see the water tower of Los Alamos up on a mesa, it creates a whole kind of tension to me that's really very interesting and so much of our modern world. So uh, I'm not really a purist in the sense of just writing about nature, but I'm thinking of nature in flux, uh, nature being challenged, species disappearing, what humans have done, and and the whole um, legacy of what modern technology has done. So, and there aren't easy resolutions, you know, it's going to continue into the future. Um, but that's had an extraordinary impact on my work. Um, well, another thing that I, I think about when, um, when I hear you talk about New Mexico is, you know, so many of the poems throughout your different bodies of work um, reference the richness of artists and creative practice that are around you in the creative community in, um, in New Mexico. And I know that Mamie Bersenbrugge has been a longtime colleague of yours and you thank her in the acknowledgements to the book as well. And it was interesting to hear you read some of these um, shorter poems that have these very long extended lines um, with spaciousness between them, which makes me think of course of Mamie's work. And, you know, would love to hear you talk a little bit about the community of poets in New Mexico and, and makers and creators and, and ways in which um, the, the sensibilities of your community have sort of come into your own work, your, your own partner, Carol Muldaw is an incredible poet and prose writer. And, you know, would be curious, I think, um, you know, for listeners to hear a little bit about the richness of that community that is there around you. Um, when I came to New Mexico in 1972, I uh, heard about a poetry in the schools program. And I remember uh, going to meet the director and he said, well, it doesn't matter if you have a graduate degree or don't. I, I didn't have a graduate degree. And he said, we have a panel that's going to look at everyone's poetry and we're going to select people and we're going to send young poets, you know, onto the Indian reservations and to Spanish speaking communities, uh, into ranching communities, up to Los Alamos with uh, children of scientists, uh, even with prisoners and he said, it has to be a poet who's willing to be adventurous. And, and I said, well, I'm up for that if the panel selects my work. And, and so I sent in 10 poems, and I remember doing that, and I was selected. And that's how I met Mamie Bersenbrugge. We were both uh, young poets in the schools. And um, I want to add that Joy Harjo and Simon Ortiz were also poets in the schools then. So it was kind of an extraordinary group of Poets, we were all in our early 20s, um, working as poets in the schools, but, you know, reading voraciously, talking about poetry, excited and passionate about poetry. And that's sort of the group that I fell in with that was very formative for my experiences. And um, Maymay and I have been friends since 1974, so a long, long time. And for many years, we uh, even shared drafts of poems with each other. So we would mark up drafts and, and uh, it was a way again of sort of challenging each other and supporting each other. And so uh, that whole group of poets was very important to me. And then in the 80s, I started teaching at the Institute of American Indian Arts. And as the director of the program, I had the good fortune to bring in writers from all over the country for residencies. So there was a whole kind of uh, scene of local poets, and we were fed by other poets coming in and out of New Mexico. It was really a pretty uh, wonderful time. Um, I should mention John Brandy, who published my first two books of poetry, who had a press nobody has ever heard of called Tooth of Time. But uh, he had just come out of the Peace Corps, and he lived in a cabin that he built in Guadalupita, New Mexico, by himself and running water from the creek, I'll never forget, ran through the kitchen sink and down and then out of the house. He diverted a little bit of the creek water. So New Mexico had all sorts of unusual poets and it was really a pretty exciting time. And um, yes, and then later on after the Institute, um, I met Carol um, and of course we got married and we uh, share poems with each other. And uh, at different stages, I would say. But um, we also are uh, pretty good at challenging each other. And Carol's good 
with my work. I usually show it when I'm pretty, when it's pretty far along and she'll just say, well, this isn't good enough or whatever, you know, she'll, you know, she's not shy about going in and working with my poems and uh, I'll do the same with her. So there is a community here. And now that I'm older, I'm excited to discover uh, younger poets coming into Santa Fe. There's a young poet, Jenny George, who published a first book with Copper Canyon. And there's a poet, Sylvie Baumgartel, who Carol and I just met about 10 days ago. And her second book of poetry is coming out with Farrar Strauss, uh, Giroux in New York. So there are a lot of poets here. I think everyone works independently and certainly with COVID, nobody's getting together. But uh, everyone is pretty much aware of each other's work. And I think when things you know, improve when we get through this pandemic, there'll be clusters of, you know, poets meeting and reading and talking to each other. Well, we spent quite a bit of time talking about the local. Um, You have traveled the world widely, and this is reflected in so many of your poems, including Unpacking the Globe, which you read for us earlier. So, you know, during this time of the COVID-19 pandemic, people have had to really rethink their relationship to both the global and the local There have been decreases in transportation and industrial activity that have resulted in a drop in daily global carbon emissions and changes in individual behavior and social attitudes have started to take root. Um, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on the connection between the pandemic and the climate crisis. Um, I want to say they're connected, but maybe not in such a linear way. I, I would say maybe their roots or their sources are the same. So they're, Uh, two obviously urgent manifestations of a world in crisis. And, you know, people are dying from COVID even as we speak and have this conversation. So uh, I I say this with humility and just, you know, my limited perspective. My sense is that, uh, you know, climate change on a large scale is, uh, for instance, forcing animals to redirect where they live how they forage, you know, with species vanishing. It's creating, it's changing the whole way that um, creatures interact with each other and way humans come in contact with them. And so I think that makes conditions ripe for diseases to spread. Say, I mean, we don't know that COVID came from the pangolin. I've heard that that's one possibility, but it probably came from another creature and then jumped to the human species. And with the climate change and things being disrupted, I think there's, um, it really increases the chances for this kind of disease activity to be uh, moving back and forth between species. And it's just an instance of this, again, world in, in, in crisis. Um, I'm not sure what else to add to that. Your poems access so many different kinds of knowledge. You know, certainly we've talked about scientific knowledge, uh, ecological knowledge, um, but many of them also relate to forms of esoteric knowledge, um, divination. Uh, the I Ching uh, plays a role in many of your poems, tea leaf readings, um, and the idea of the talismanic. And there's this attunement to the unseen forces beyond the human eye. I'm just curious, do you think of ways in which ecology and poetry also fit into this category of the esoteric? Well, I think poetry and ecology both make connections. Ecology is making connections between different living species. And poetry makes connections through language with emotion and imagination. And it's also I'd like to say endlessly branching, uh, both of them, both ecology and poetry are endlessly branching and they're making connections that are really vital. And in my perspective, what we can see is actually a very small part of what's actually there. So the sort of web that I talk about, parts of it are visible and many parts of it are not visible. And rather than a linear cause and effect like this causes that um, something happens and it kind of ricochets and has different effects that we might not be able to see right away. And they might come out in ways that are unexpected or unseen. So for me, uh, the use of divination, a text like the I Ching, which fascinates me 
because the idea of transformation and change and then trying to create categories of understanding in a way that's how I'm reading the hexagrams interests me. So it's not like um, deep practitioners in these belief systems, but I feel like they are helpful in a way. They're like mythic systems and uh, they're helping us. They're tools that can help us understand relationships in the world. We can't always put our finger on. So uh, I'll add one more thing, you know, the example of the tea leaf, which is in the opening poem from water calligraphy. It's just, Uh, setting a tea bowl down and looking at the tea leaves and looking at how the shapes change. To me, that could be just an accident. But the Greeks used to have this phrase, the Hermion, which comes from Hermes, which is thievery. But the idea was um, a Hermion was a lucky find and that these lucky finds are everywhere around us and they're available if only we're sort of ready to see them, we can make use of them. And for me, just sitting down the tea leaf and looking, you could say, oh, that's just a coincidence. That's an accident. But to me, it was like revelatory. It's like, oh, well, there's a pattern here. This is, and it led me into something much larger. It was lovely to hear you talk about um, an ancient text, an ancient text like the I Ching, um, you know, thinking about your relationship to, to texts. Readers will also know you as a highly regarded literary translator of Chinese poetry. And, you know, you just spoke on this idea of transformation and change. Um, you know, literary translation has had an impact on your writing. And I'm wondering about the decision not to incorporate that work of yours as a translator into the Glass Constellation. Um, I think if there were a handful of translations, I would consider it. I'm thinking of, for instance, uh, Cathay fitting into Ezra Pound's larger body of work. But I believe there are only, what, maybe 19 or 20 poems in Cathay. It's not like there's a lot. I considered including the Chinese translations. And then my goal is to make that, that's my next project, to make it a separate book. Um, and there are several reasons for that. There, there are about 55 pages of translations. They start from Tao Chen at 400 Common Era, and they end in terms of chronological time in the 1950s with basically some party propaganda poetry by Yan Chen. But I think they're interesting poems, and they have folk elements that go back to the beginning. Well, Since uh, The Silk Dragon came out in 2001, I've traveled, I've been lucky to travel to China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and I've translated about 10 poems by poets in China, Taiwan, and um, Yang Lian, who's actually in Germany now. And I want to sort of bring The Silk Dragon up to date and add the contemporary Chinese translations in. So that makes it an even bigger book. And then I sort of wanted to ask you what you think of this idea. It might be crazy or it might be fun. I was thinking about writing an essay at the end of The Silk Dragon because I'm an anomaly. I didn't go to graduate school and get an MFA. Almost all my friends did. And I really learned my craft through translation. And there are a lot of wonderful poets doing wonderful translations now. Um, But I thought maybe it would be worth writing an essay that would talk about how translation practice is so important and then personalizing it. And mm, this is the part I'm uneasy about talking about how uh, Chinese poetry has influenced my own poetics. I don't want to do explanations, but clearly it's been a huge influence on the evolution of my work. What do you think about the essay idea? That makes me so excited. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think that could be a really um, valuable text for classrooms that are teaching literary translation and exploring Mm. kind of how that can be um, a tool in one's own sort of literary practice. But but also much beyond that, that it, it can have a really meaningful impact upon one's relationship to language and the decisions that one makes in 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 the construction of a poem. Um, Yeah. Uh, as as kind of like a, a group of techniques or, you know, the kinds of things that you've come away with, I feel like there's tremendous value in that. That's really exciting to hear. Um, 
Wow. So already on to the next project. So that would be my next project. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, before, yeah, before we leave, you, you know, the present project, you know, the Glass Constellation is, mm. is an amazing, amazing accomplishment. It spans 50 years of your writing. And I would just love to know if there are things that surprised you in putting together this collection of your work. I mean, as I was reading through the poems, you know, that, that I first came to know your work in the 1990s, mm. like, you know, there were images that, um, you know, occupied some of those poems that would then sort of come back in a different form in more recent poems, but the image would have evolved or shifted or the context around it. And those are really beautiful moments to observe and sort of connecting the sort of entire body of your work. And, you know, what was it like for you putting together this entire collection? And, you know, what, what surprised you about it? Uh, it was really exciting and humbling to have the opportunity to basically put all of my poetry together over 50 years in this book. There were some very early poems I didn't need to see again. So that's why it says like from the willow wind or from two ravens. But basically from my third book, Dazzle, every poem in every book is there along with the new poems. And one of the things that did excite me was that sense of return that you talked about that um, I feel like as a poet, I can't escape my obsessions. And rather than try and do that, it's better to try and work through them. So coming back to revisit a certain image, uh, like water flows to what is wet, uh, which actually comes out of the I Ching, by the way, and it's haunted me, that the way that that can return many years later with a much larger context or a deeper sort of force behind the language. That was really exciting for me. I felt like I wasn't just repeating myself. And I've consciously tried over time to push myself in different ways. You know, if I'm working on syntax or working on certain images or in sight lines using the dash and the disruption, um, I'm trying to keep growing. And it is one large body of work. And I think the other thing that excited me, that surprised me, was I felt like the most recent work in Compass Rose and Sightlines have a kind of relaxed emotional openness to them. I feel like my earlier poems are tight, they're more formal. Um, and, uh, you know, we could, we don't have time to go into all of this, but the early poems are too, I think, in awe or too modeled over sort of ancient Chinese poems where they're like artifacts. And then over time, they broke apart and they opened up and more of the contemporary world started to come in. More of my own life experience came in. But I feel like I'm at, I feel very lucky that I'm at this place where in many ways, the poems are writing themselves in the sense that I'm at a stage where having, you know, written for 50 years, I can somehow trust the motion of language. And I know when it's authentic, leading me to somewhere I've never been before, and where sometimes I'll think, oh, I've done that before, I'm just repeating, and I'll just strip that out. And so I feel like I'm very lucky at this stage where, again, the poems are organically thriving and, and very open emotionally. I'd agree. Um, the, the new works have a sort of a tenderness to them. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't... Um, I think classify your your older poems as as intellectual per se, but um, but I, I think this kind of highly composed kind of artifacts I think is a is a good way to think about them. But you know, then we turn to kind of the the newest poems like Transpirations, um, where you know there's a it's not just a speaker, there's an eye in, in these poems and, and there's something of that experience coming into the poem and it, it changes and shifts the emotional quality, which is a, a, a new way in which I feel like um, readers can engage with your work, which is exciting. So as we're just kind of winding down this conversation, um, Transpirations, it turns towards a call for action on the part of the reader. And a question that I ask all of my guests uh, for Lyric World are um, just to talk a little bit about what you think or feel the role of poet and poetry should be in our society. I want to be humble about that and not make really big claims. Wasn't it Shelley who said poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world? I, I, I think for me, poetry is, uh, rather than make that kind of large, grandiose claim, more individual and private and yet connected to the community and world at large. So I think poetry 
demands that we slow down, that we pay attention to language and care about the words that we use, um, handle them with care, and in doing so, to also be able to see clearly, to feel deeply, authentically. Um, and as we do that, I think poetry has a kind of urgency behind it. I mean, for me, poems need to be necessary. They're not just something written in spare time or for amusement. They're coming out of the deepest part of myself. And I feel that I want poems to reach a reader in that sense where a reader can go, wow, I, you know, I'm seeing something, experiencing something. This is really important. And then it's not just to say, oh, I've had that, and then to walk away from it, but to think, okay, that expanse, that sense of waking up, that clarity, that vision, how do I put that into practice? Maybe that's an Asian perspective there. But I think uh, poetry has a social function there because then it changes a person in small but really significant ways. And I think if we all start to do that, um, and by the way, I'm making an aside, you know, it's great to see Biden quote Seamus Heaney, uh, that poetry can have an impact like that. I think that is a really uh, wonderful sign that language is important, that tear is important. And I think in that way, it helps all of us to start changing our lives and living more responsibly. And it brings in uh, a community that is much more communal, that is less transactional. And in those ways, I think there's much less despair and hopelessness and um, there's a greater sense of collectivity and connectivity. Arthur, thank you so much for sharing your work and your perspectives with us today and for giving us something to look forward to in 2021, the publication of The Glass Constellation in April. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Music for today's program was provided by Gao Ping. As a leading member of the sixth generation of Chinese composers, Gao Ping's compositions, which fuse Western and Eastern idioms, have won wide acclaim throughout the world. Gao Ping's two albums, released on the Naxos label, were praised by critics and described as music which wants to be heard with the ears of a child, full of wonder and amazement. We'll be back next year with programs in February, April, and June 2021. Thanks for listening. Town Hall Seattle presented this Lyric World event on December 7, 2020. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.